1: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Kathleen Williams-Rank about her debut novel, Vindicated. I think it's fair to say that most of our listeners will be familiar with the story of Frankenstein. I saw the 1931 version of the film, probably in high school, and I have fond memories of 1974's Young Frankenstein, although I skipped the 1994 version. But what of Mary Shelley, who created that gothic tale to which only Bram Stoker's Dracula can be considered a rival? Who was she, and where did she find her inspiration? These questions are the focus of Kathleen Rank's novel. Vindicated opens with Mary's birth, told from the perspective of her father, the Reverend William Godwin. Prologue, 1797. I hear the murmur, bring in the pups to suckle. Perhaps that will loosen the afterbirth, I want to shout, no, bring me my baby. But my tongue is tied. I'm hot and thirsty, but no one offers me water. Please, I beg them in my mind. And then nothing. I drift out of my body. I search for my daughter. 31st August, 1797. Even though we have prestigious surgeons in attendance, I begin to think that these surgeons are fools. One wears his powdered wig askew, looking like a pantaloon. I inquire what their objective is in healing my dear wife, Mary, and all they say is that they need to remove the remainder of the afterbirth, which is stuck. They think that bringing pups to suck on my wife's breasts may make her womb contract sufficiently to release the last bits of the placenta and thus cure her of her fever and blood poisoning. I watch incredulously as they try to coax the pups to nurse on the human teeth. If Mary were truly here in full force, if she were cognizant, she would be appalled and would be calling the surgeons out for their ludicrous plan. I feel such shock in seeing my brilliant wife so lethargic and ill that I suffer mental paralysis in regard to the correct course of action. I try to believe that the surgeons possess reason and logic and know precisely what they are doing. I must have faith in their abilities and knowledge. Surely they have seen other such cases and understand the remedy. I briefly consult with the head doctor, Dr. George Fordyce, a friend and expert whom Mary insisted on procuring, and ask him why he doesn't place the newborn child at the breast instead of these ridiculous pups. He says that without the mother's guidance, the child cannot latch on. The pups know instinctively what to do. Is he suggesting that humans possess less instinct than other animals? I wonder what Erasmus Darwin would say in response to his absurd and unsubstantiated claim. So far, I don't see any progress. The puppies just lie on Mary's chest, which heaves with each breath. They do not root for the teat. They snuggle next to each other, while the surgeons take turns tickling their feet to entice them to nurse. If this weren't so very tragic, the scene would be comical. The midwife, Mrs. Blenkinsop, stands in the background with her arms folded across her chest. She remains silent because she knows that these foolish men will not ask for or listen to her expert advice even though she is the head midwife at Westminster lying in hospital and has personally attended more births than all of these buffoons combined. She seems as disgusted and baffled as I am. And just to clarify, that very first paragraph before the date uh, was actually Mary Wollstonecraft herself thinking before her husband picks up the tale. And now, please join me in welcoming Kathleen Rink. Hi, Kathleen. Thank you for talking with me today.
0: Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for... Asking me to talk with you today. I appreciate it.
1: Like several of my other guests and myself as well, you were an academic before you began writing fiction. How did you make that transition and why?
0: Well, I was an English professor at Northern Illinois University and I had a lot of success writing and publishing scholarly books and argumentative essays, but I also had taken fiction writing courses at the University of Iowa when I was a grad student. So when I retired in 2018, I was doing some soul searching and going to yoga. And I met uh, an ESL teacher who'd retired. And she gave me the best advice I thought. She said, You need to reinvent yourself. And so she ended up reinventing herself by becoming a yoga teacher. And I became a fiction writer and essayist. But this is kind of my fourth iteration of reinventing myself because I first earned a BA in religion and philosophy then a B.S. in nursing and practice as a women's healthcare nurse for 12 years. And finally, I earned a Ph.D. in English when I was still here in Iowa City. So I'm kind of used to um, changing course and finding new things to do. And I decided to write historical fiction because it still left me a way to have some research interests and then trying to create characters and their voices. And for years, I was inspired um, by a particular work by Emma Donahue. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but she wrote a collection of stories called The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits. And it's kind of a history of known and unknown women writers from the Middle Ages to the contemporary times. But each one of the stories is based on a little scrap of history that she said was so strange that she had to write about it. And so I thought... Um, initially, in writing, vindicated that I wanted to take this scrap of history and write a woman's life story. And the other thing I'm really interested in, and um, kind of think about my work in this way is that I've always admired scholars who also write fiction, <laughs> like A.S. Byatt, Emma Donahue is another one, Sarah Waters. And I'm not a writer of their caliber, but I still wanted to see if I could do both. So. That's about it.
1: And what was it about Mary Shelley's story in particular that made you want to tell it?
0: Well, as I just said, this scrap of history was most interesting to me. Originally, when I started writing Vindicated, I just wrote about the moment of Mary Shelley's birth um, and the strange circumstances of her birth. So the fact that her mother was this famous and somewhat Infamous woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, who died of septicemia or blood poisoning and of a retained placenta eleven days after Mary was born, and then oddly, the physicians who were attending the birth brought in puppies to nurse Mary Wollstonecraft instead of bringing her child in and I just thought that was the strangest thing I had been a nurse in labor and delivery, <laughs> and of course, this just sounded really odd so Initially, I just wrote that opening, which is the prologue to the novel, and then that led me to think more about Mary Shelley. And I had um, a biography that I had never read uh, of Mary Shelley by Muriel Spark, and I thought, okay, what can I do with this? And I started reading it, and I learned so much more about the fact that Mary Shelley was far more than just the author of Frankenstein. Um, She had quite a adventurous life, you might say. Um, she wrote other novels. She, By the time she had started to write Frankenstein, she had already lost one child. She'd run away with a married man, Percy Shelley. She had been rejected by her father. And so she, at a very young age, had experienced all kinds of, of things. Um, and then I read that she continued to write after Percy died uh, in a boating accident. he had drowned, and she really lived by her pen. So I wanted to relay um, her emotional uh, her emotional state, um, and I read her journals and the journal that she wrote with Percy, and mostly those were just accounts of what they read like there would be an entry that would say read Voltaire today or read the wrongs of woman but never got at her emotional life so I wanted to um capture that and I also wanted to think about the philosophical bent that I find in Frankenstein and I think permeates all of her work so that's yeah that's kind of it um why I I wanted to write about her in particular.
1: So we'll come back to some of those details uh, that you just mentioned as we go through, but tell us a little bit about her parents. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, obviously some of our listeners must know who Mary Wollstonecraft is, but both her mother and her father were quite uh, unconventional figures for the late 18th century. Could you tell us a bit about them?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, her mother, I think, was just a really brave, bold woman. quite a radical for her time. She's often thought of as the mother of British feminism, and she achieved so much by the time she died at an early age of 38. She had already contributed to both philosophy and the early uh, writings of feminism. So her opus in 1792 is The Vindication of the Rights of Woman*, and she argues in favor of equal education for women and women's equality in terms of reason, she said that women are rational beings, and that we were enfeebled by false refinement. So she wanted us to get away from that. Um, She uh, acknowledged that women's education at the time was only geared towards making females helpmates to their husbands or dolls for male amusement. So prior to writing her opus, she also wrote a Vindication of the Rights of Man in 1790, and it was a reaction to Edmund Burke's reflections on the French Revolution. So she challenged all of his assumptions, He was against the dismantling of aristocracy in Britain out of fear that the French Revolution would spread there. But she um, tamped all of that down and she wrote other things. She wrote about the education of daughters, uh, which she wrote when she was a governess in Ireland. She wrote a travel narrative when she traveled alone with just her baby daughter and a maid to Scandinavia. And she wrote a couple of novels. So overall, though, she had very unconventional ideas at the time. She thought of marriage as a type of slavery for women. <laughs> and so she even predates John Stuart Mill's idea about that. And one of her characters um, in Mary Fiction says that they look forward to a time when there's neither marriage nor the giving in marriage. Um, about, I guess I can launch into talking about William Godwin, her husband. One of the things that he did in trying to preserve her reputation is that he destroyed it. <laughs> so he wrote her memoir after she died. And in it, he was absolutely honest about her life. He revealed that she'd had an affair with an American Gilbert Inlay. She gave birth out of wedlock to her daughter Fanny. And twice she tried to end her life. One time she threw herself into the River Thames. So that led, uh, once, once this was published, that led Robert Sethi, who was a poet at the time and a critic, he wrote that Godwin in his candor had stripped his wife naked. So thankfully, 20th century scholars uh, and writers redeemed her reputation. And now her writings are essential in courses that focus on feminism and women and gender studies. And there was just recently a sculpture erected of her in London. Now about Godwin, he, um, was a dissenting minister until he was 29. And he was a really well-known intellectual, a political philosopher, an anarchist. He believed that humans, um, if they developed their rational faculties, would not need any government, which sounds really odd. <laughs> and I don't think would actually work out. But he was highly influential at the time. He wrote uh, work that had a huge impact on Percy Shelley and others. It's called An Inquiry Concerning Political Justice. He and Mary uh, Wollstonecraft were both proponents of the French Revolution until the Reign of Terror um, came about. And life, uh, the affair that Mary Wollstonecraft had with Gilbert Imlay, he, uh, Godwin started to have a love affair with her after she and, and Imlay were no longer together. And they only got married because Mary Wollstonecraft became pregnant. So they did that in order so that their child wouldn't be ostracized, ostracized from society. And overall, though, with Mary Wollstonecraft, Godwin says that he had the first taste of love in his life and they wrote ardent love letters to one another, which I touch on in the novel. Um, Even though he was really a nonconformist, he didn't approve of his daughter's turn toward an unconventional life. And as I said, he disowned her uh, initially. He wouldn't even speak to her after she came back from Europe with Percy and would only communicate with them through his lawyer. Uh, and that took several years before they started actually seeing one another again. So um,
1: Mary Perforce grows up motherless, although she does acquire a stepmother, um, How does that affect her, and why does she decide to keep uh, a journal, which becomes the the framework for your novel?
0: Well, growing up with the stepmother, it's kind of interesting. Um, Godwin tried to get two women to marry him (laughs) before he actually convinced um, Mrs. Claremont, who is his next-door neighbor, to, to marry him. And Mary did not get on at all with this woman, whom she considered far inferior to her own mother. Her mother was a brilliant woman. So they frequently had rows. And I I mentioned that in the novel and show some scenes where that takes place. Um, They even, at one point, uh, Godwin sends Mary off to Scotland just to get her away from her stepmother. Um, The stepmother, I think, was rather jealous of Mary's, Um, affection for her father and likewise Godwin's affection for his daughter. So in terms of writing a journal, um, as I said, in real life, Mary and Percy kept one together until Percy stopped writing his. But in my novel, I really wanted to uh, think about the fact that I think that Mary most likely thought that What her father wrote about her mother was secondhand knowledge, because he never witnessed any of it. So in my novel, I have her think about the fact that she wants people to know what she thought. And if she were to ever become famous, she would want her own words recording her own life. And that's how she begins her journal.
1: Um, This brings us to Percy Shelley, uh, whom Mary meets in January 1811 when she is 14. Um, I think everyone listening probably knows his name, I hope so, anyway, and perhaps read Ozymandias in school, but I learned from your book that there was actually much more to Shelley than just poetry. Tell us about him independently of Mary.
0: Well, he was an absolute bad boy, (laughs) a rebel. He had a scandalous reputation. By the time he met Mary Shelley, he had been um, expelled from University College Oxford which is really odd. If you go to visit that college now, they have a statue of him uh, in his death right inside the entryway of that college. But he wrote um, with his friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg a pamphlet entitled The Necessity of Atheism. Well, of course, that really enraged his father, who was a member of parliament and a baronet, and he expected Shelley to follow in his footsteps, but Shelley was not going to do that. And So his father started withholding Shelley's allowance. Um, But that didn't stop Shelley from wanting to go and do other things. He traveled to Dublin in the winter of 1812, uh, all with this idea that he was going to go aid the Irish in their quest for Catholic emancipation and a repeal of the penal laws that forbade Catholics from receiving an education, from owning land, and a lot of other things. But he really failed in his political work when he was in Ireland, he was only there for about four months. And I actually write about that in another one of my novels um, that I'm working on. So he transitioned from writing these political tracts, and he started writing poetry. So right after that, he wrote Queen Mab. Um, and now, of course, you know he is known as one of the great romantic poets. And that's really to Mary's credit, because she redeemed his reputation. She gathered his poems later um, and edited them and had them published. But I think overall, he was really an impulsive idealist. He was a great believer in human perfectibility. He also was kind of a heretic of his time. He believed in an infinity of worlds that, you know, we aren't just one small cosmos. There's a a great number of worlds out there. And he was also an advocate of free love. (laughs) So he even um, didn't put off his friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, who wanted to have an affair with Mary right after she had lost her first child. Um, so there's that about him. He was also what you would call a natural philosopher. Um, that's what scientists were called in those days. So he was interested in electricity, galvanism, and all kinds of things. But emotionally, he was quite um, melancholic or mercurial and maybe somewhat mad, um, He tried to, uh, he threatened anyway, to kill himself if Mary wouldn't run away with him. And, you know, that's a good sign that there's something a little wrong.
1: (laughs) Uh, Shelley is married when they meet uh, to a woman named Harriet, and they have a child. Um, This reality does not prevent him and Mary from falling madly in love. And of course, she's 14. So that's, perhaps not too surprising for her, but what of him? Uh, What draws him to her so profoundly that he's willing to destroy his family for her sake? And what does he mean when he calls her his child of light?
0: Well, I actually think that he was mostly attracted to her because she was William Godwin's daughter. He um, had been writing to William Godwin when he was in Ireland, and Godwin warned him about his political work and told him to get back to England because He could maybe lead uh, to more bloodshed in Ireland, which had happened in 1803 with Robert Emmett's failed rebellion. So when he came back, he started visiting Godwin and his family, and he met Mary. And he was married to Harriet Westbrook at the time, but he had failed, he thought, to cultivate, those are the words he used, to cultivate Harriet into becoming the woman that he wanted her to be. And she tried very hard to be that, but I guess she didn't make it. Um, so for him, when he met Mary Godwin, he saw her as his ideal, his ideal woman, and that uh, when he he actually wrote a poem that where he mentions the Child of Light," and it comes from the revolt of Islam, and these are the words. Ere my fame become a star among the stars of mortal night, if it indeed may cleave its natal gloom, its doubtful promise, thus I would unite with thy beloved name, thou child of love and light. And he dedicated that poem to Mary, so suggesting that maybe she was his muse, but also if he achieved some fame, then he would unite with her. But he united with her even before (laughs) he achieved any fame. So I think, though, in being what she thought of as his child of life, because he referred to her as that, that somehow they were going to do something really great together, that they would even supersede her parents and what they accomplished and that their work would, would uh, contrib- contribute to a more perfect world.
1: As you mentioned earlier, uh, Shelley and Mary elope to Europe uh, because, of course, they can't marry since Shelley is already married. But they don't go alone. Uh, they take with them... Uh, her stepsister, uh, Jane, who's also called Claire later in life. And Claire falls like a ton of bricks for Lord Byron, uh, who is another romantic bad boy. Um, Now, this is historical. Uh, Jane slash Claire and Byron have a daughter. Um, But in novel terms, uh, how does this... Sort of subplot um, with Jane and Claire, Jane, <laughs> we'll, we'll just call her Jane, and <laughs> would Jane um, fit into the the larger story of uh, Mary and Shelley?
0: Well, I actually think that it's the way I use it in the novel is that it's a foil for um, the relationship between Mary and Shelley um, because Claire or Jane. <laughs> Uh, Claire, by the time she has no, knows Byron, um, she, as you said, is you know adamant about being with him, and I think that um, she sees in Byron what she wanted in Shelley. She kind of sought Shelley uh, during a lot of her uh, young life, and. She couldn't have Shelley, she was going to go after Byron. But because their relationship is so testy the relationship between Claire and Byron, where they had frequent rows and they never married, and he did all kinds of terrible things to their daughter, uh, changing her name, eventually not taking good care of her, and the child dies um, they really have no real connection to one another. Whereas Mary and Percy, even though Percy, I believe, was actually most likely unfaithful to Mary on several occasions, they still really, truly cared deeply about one another. And despite his madness, um, she loved him.
1: There are many more topics we could discuss, including the issues of Mary's marriage and motherhood. But let's focus for a moment on Frankenstein itself. How did she come up with such a gothic tale? She was still very young when she wrote this. And what sources did she draw on?
0: Okay, well, so I think most people have heard this, um, and it's been filmed frequently, I think in the 1930s version of the film about Frankenstein. Uh, Mary, Shelley, and Claire have joined Byron at his estate at Lake Geneva, Switzerland, and this is the summer of 1816. Um, the weather's really stormy, volatile. In the previous year, a volcano had erupted and that had led to the dismal weather for the summer. They thought that they were going to enjoy the lake and they really never got to. So Byron suggests that everyone writes a ghost story. And so Mary wrote what's now chapter four of Frankenstein as her contribution. But prior to this, In the previous year, she'd given birth to a premature baby, and that baby only lived less than two weeks. And, of course, Mary was absolutely devastated. And I imagine that she began pondering philosophical questions about God's cruelty, whether one could create a creature that could be reanimated or could become immortal. And in this way, I think she's just prescient about our own culture. Um, Just the other day, I was uh, listening to 1A and they had a a talk about biohacking and um, the latest attempts at altering genes through CRISPR and just the idea that someday maybe people will be immortal. Um, So she she was onto that way before we have realized some of that. Um, But also... In her life, she and Shelley had been attending these galvanic experiments where they'd used electricity to make the limbs of dead frogs reanimate, and all of this is contributing to her tale. So in the novel and in real life, she dreamt the moment that Victor Frankenstein pieces together a creature and animates it, and That night, though, right before she went to bed, they'd been talking about human perfectibility, And so all these things are coming into her mind. She'd been reading what her mother had written about Prometheus. Um, And so these things kind of feed into what what she's thinking about. And, of course, she's wondering, will it be possible to reanimate the dead at some point? So when she has the dream, she quickly records what she dreamt. And then she knew what her story would be for the contest.
1: And you wanted to read that scene of the contest, I think. Yes. So please go ahead. This would be the perfect time.
0: All right, good. <laughs> um, so June 24th, 1816. The dismal weather continues unabated, which engendered the perfect setting for the reading of our stories. First, Byron narrated his story about a dying aristocrat. I wondered if perhaps he was referring to himself What could he be hiding? Had his licentiousness finally caught up with him for good? I didn't have long to ponder my speculation because as soon as Byron finished his tale and poured himself a tumbler of wine, Shelley started to read his short tale about ghost chasing and stealing bodies in Highgate Cemetery. I was the only one who knew that his story was autobiographical, and I wondered if anyone would try to connect Shelley's tale to mine, which I was eager to read. I started to speak when Shelley laid down his manuscript, but then Byron turned to Polidori and said, John, please scare us, silly. Shelley's story did not make me quiver. I found it rather comedic with all of the gravediggers stealing corpses and then heading straight to the pub. Polidori looked smug, believing that, he, that for once he might best Shelley, whom he considers his rival for Byron's affection. He rose from the couch on which he was lounging and read his tale of Lord Ruthven, who got drunk on blood. I began to wonder if all three of these stories were autobiographical and looked closely at Polidori to see if he cast a shadow. The candles barely illuminated the room, so it was difficult to see. I felt a bit uneasy, but I tried not to think about it further. Surely vampires are fiction. But he wrote so convincingly that I feared that he had at least some experience with the undead. When Polidori said fini, Byron, who acted as judge, said marvelous. Now, that sent chills through me. You scared me, so I might need to take Claire into my bed for comfort. He looked at Claire, who was grinning as if she'd won the contest. Shelley turned to Byron and said, stop jesting, George. Which story did you deem the best? Why, Mr. Polidori's, of course. I believe we have a winner. Polidori smirked at Shelley and then reached out to Byron to grasp his hand. No, wait, I piped up. I have a tale, too. Shelley seemed surprised. And Byron looked at me oddly and smiled sardonically as if to say, little girl, how could you write a grisly tale equal to or better than what we've just heard? I ignored his dismissive look and moved closer to the the candlelight. The light flickered on the page, but then grew stronger, illuminating, illuminating it. My voice trembled as I began. It was on a dreary night. I had to stop. I'd never read the tale aloud nor to anyone, and reading it in near darkness with shadows surrounding us made me tremble even more. I tried to quiet my racing heart. I then looked at Shelley. His encouraging smile gave me confidence, and I felt bathed in light. I began again. It was on a dreary night in November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that was almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when by the glimmer of a half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. I heard gasps, and I paused. Claire was grasping Shelley's arm, and I saw that Byron had closed his eyes and folded his hands like a steeple in front of his chest. Shelley wore an anxious look. He nodded at me, indicating that I should proceed. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes. I glanced up to see Polidori, Byron, Shelley, and Claire staring at me. Their eyes grew wide as they imagined the scene in the dismal room and young Victor's act of creation, a moment that belied and mocked the image of the act of creation as rendered by Michelangelo, when the creator imparts life by touching Adam's extended finger. Unlike Adam's creator, my creator touched his creature with profane hands, and thus his creature was a lonesome, vile replica of a man. His creature became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I continued and revealed Victor's tortured dream after he fled his creation, whereby he thought that his beloved cousin Elizabeth, whom he held in his arms, had been transformed into his dead mother, her shroud crawling with grave worms. Claire shrieked and suddenly cried out, No, it can't be. I ignored her and proceeded as the candle momentarily sputtered as a gust of wind blew in from the veranda. As I completed my tale... I felt an eerie presence. Like Victor, who fretted that the miserable monster remained in his apartment, I looked around to see if my creature had arrived in our midst. I saw shadows play against the wall, but fortunately, no creature emerged. When I finished, I was shaking as indeed all in the room seemed to be. Claire looked horrified, as did the rest of the audience, who remained completely silent. Byron opened his eyes and for a brief second, they looked like the dull eyes of Victor's creature. Mary... Where did that tale come from? Byron asked. Did Shelley write that for you? Of course not. It's solely a product of my imagination, my own dreams. I dreamt it, I replied. As we know, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. Byron laughed, and then Shelley added, and our little lives are rounded with the sleep. Then Byron began to clap slowly, and all joined in. Well done, he exclaimed. I believe we have our winner. I saw respect in his eyes for the first time although I wanted to, I refrained from saying, you thought that a young girl could not write a grisly tale, didn't you? And you think that women are incapable of imagination. What's your opinion now of the female sex and our ability to exercise imagination? Are we not worthy writers? That's great. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. That was fun to read.
1: (laughs) Is there anything or anyone we haven't mentioned that you'd especially like readers and listeners to know about?
0: Well, I think I wanted to talk a little bit about Shelley's death at the age of 29. Um, I, as I mentioned, he died, he died in a failing accident, but this was really heartbreaking for Mary, because prior to this, three of her children had died. She had just miscarried another child. Her sister, Fanny, and Shelley's previous wife, Harriet Shelley, had both committed suicide, and then Mary lost Shelley. <laughs> So uh, despite his bouts of madness, he was her greatest love. In the epilogue, um, Mary takes her surviving child, the one child who's her solace in life, whose name is Percy Florence, to the location in Italy of Shelley's death and tells him the terrible tale of Shelley's drowning and how his body was burned on the beach. Um, That is really heart-wrenching for me, and there are a lot of great details that I included in that. Um, including the fact that his friend Trelawney, uh brings Shelley's heart to Mary um, as a gift. But I'm not going to say uh, what happened to it. I'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> what would you like people to take away from Vindicated?
0: Well, I guess my aim overall was to show that Mary Shelley was a product of both her mother and father, that she became a philosopher, that her father wanted her to be. He had written. Initially, um, when he sent her to Scotland to his friend and said she's to be raised as a philosopher. So I have her leaning into all of that um, in her work. And I also want readers to take away the idea that she was a woman who lived by her pen. After Percy died, she wrote several other novels. She became a translator and she was able to work despite all of the griefs that she had. In the for, uh, in, within seven years, she had lost six people who were important to her life. So despite that, her work was an antidote to her grief. And that's one of the important things we all need to learn, I guess. <laughs> you can experience, experience great suffering, but oftentimes art will help you combat it. This
1: novel came out last year. But as we all know, publishing takes time. Uh, are
0: you already
1: working on something new?
0: Yes, I actually have two novel projects. Um, one is under consideration right now. It's called In an, an Artist Studio, and it's a reimagined relationship between the Victorian poet Christina Rossetti and her sister-in-law, a fellow poet and painter, Elizabeth Biddle. I imagine that they create a pre-Raphaelite sisterhood and that Lizzie is the subject of Christina's best-known poem Goblin Market, And this novel is um, kind of based on the research that I did for my last monograph, that's uh, subtitled Erotic Victorians. I did a lot of research about the pre-Raphaelite sisterhood. So it comes out of that. And then the other novel that I'm currently working on is kind of a prequel to Vindicated. It's called No um, No Coward Soul Have I. And I imagine the time when Percy Shelley and Harriet go to Ireland and they meet the Irish rebel and heroine Anne Devlin when the Shelleys were there in 1812. So it's both the story of Percy's failed idealism, but it's also the story of Anne Devlin, whom I don't think very many Americans know about, but she was the housekeeper um, and colleague of Robert Emmett, who had led a rebellion in 1803 and it, it failed and he was executed. But Anne Devlin was kept in the notorious Kilmainham jail for three years, mostly in the dark, often starved and tortured. And during that time, she never revealed anything about Robert Emmett or any other member of the United Irishmen and women. And I was really interested in writing this story, Anne Devlin's story, because I um, through my position at Northern Illinois University, I taught five summers in Ireland. And I visited Kilmainham jail, I saw where she was imprisoned. And I've wanted to tell that story since then. So once I learned that Shelley um, had spent time in Ireland, I thought it was entirely possible that they may have met because Shelley was a great admirer of Robert Emmett. And (laughs) strangely, he thought of himself as sort of a reincarnation of Emmett.
1: Well, that all sounds fascinating. I'll hope you come back and talk to us again. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Kathleen.
0: Oh, thank you, Carolyn. I've really enjoyed talking with you.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Kathleen Williams-Rank about Vindicated, a novel of Mary Shelley. Find out more about her at www.quidono.com. That's C-U-I-D-O-N-O. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at newbookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.